Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And even though we have such a good God who is, who is good all the time, our life of faith that we live as we trust in him and rely on him has its many ups and downs. It is a faith that is growing It is a faith that will grow deeper in reliance on him. It is still a faith, nonetheless, that has its ups and downs as it makes its way ultimately to glory as we are with Jesus finally. And the great comfort and the great assurance and the great hope we have, however, as we live in this earth by faith, is not by thinking, oh, look how great my faith is, how strong it is. Oh, no, you can be sure when you think that way, you will more than likely fall. No, our greatest comfort and our hope is in the God that we have put our faith and hope in. Because he will be faithful to his people to keep his promises even when we are unfaithful. See, after the mountaintop experience of Genesis 15 that we looked at the last couple of weeks, where Abram was promised descendants like the shining stars in the dark night sky, and he believed and he was declared as righteous, as someone having saving faith, and he continued to believe. And then on top of that, God made a unilateral covenant with him, and he demonstrated that by walking through that bloody path between the two cut pieces of the animals, showing that he alone will be responsible to fulfill his promises, no matter what may happen to the obligations of the covenant, even if Abraham and his descendants broke their obligations. I mean, this would have been great assurance, great comfort, Great hope, knowing that God will keep his end of the bargain. God will see to it that his plan of redemption will come to pass. And we'd like to think that, oh, now everything's going to be hunky-dory. Oh, everything is going to be just smooth sailing now. Abram's going to just soar like that, and Sarah's just going to soar like that, and they're just going to be these giants, a people of faith. Not exactly. Abram, as much as he is the father of faith of all those who will believe, and as much as he will continue to grow in his faith, and he will become a giant of a man who, has, who believes and relies on this great and good God, he is still a man. As the old Sunday school song goes, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. I would say as Christians that we not only share in the faith of Father Abraham, but we also share in the weaknesses of Father Abraham. In fact, even Sarai is a woman of great faith. In 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, Sarah, Sarai is presented as a model wife who trusted God and put her hope in God and followed her husband. So she was also a great woman of faith. And so while both Abram and Sarai are both people of faith, Here we will see an account of their life where they 
slip and fall. And they do not trust in the Lord. Instead, they, and they do not rely on him to bring about his promise. Instead, they rely on their own efforts. And what we see here in this passage is that as much as God demonstrated through the covenant that he would be faithful, as Abram and Sarai are going through this life of faith, another test comes. If you remember previously, there was a lot of testing, particularly with the land promise. Remember, there was a famine in the land, and it was to see whether Abram would actually stay in the land, and he failed that test. He goes to Egypt. And now there's another test that will come regarding the seed, regarding the offspring, regarding the promise of the heir. And this is, again, ultimately to grow their faith so that they would stop trusting in themselves and ultimately realize the foolishness of it and would cling on to the Lord himself. This morning, we're going to look at Genesis 16 under two headings as we look at this testing regarding the seed promise. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see human faithlessness, And in verses 7 through 16, we'll see God's faithfulness. So let's look at first human faithlessness. Verses 1 through 6. Let me just read the first couple of verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. See, God promised to Abram more than 10 years ago that he would make him a great nation. And then from here, the blessing would go out to the rest of the nations of the world. And so part of that promise meant that Abram would have a son. And as we saw last week, God confirmed to Abram that it wouldn't be an adopted son like Eliezer, like Abram was thinking. No, God said, no, it's going to be your own son, your own biological son. And so the birth of this son is crucial, it's critical to the rest of the promises of God and his plan of salvation. Sarah is barren the whole time. Ten years have passed. And at this point, Sarah is about 75 years old and Abram about 85. So humanly speaking, I mean, Sarai, a 75-year-old woman, I mean, she's well past the age of childbearing. Can you think of a 75-year-old ever getting pregnant? It seems impossible, humanly speaking. And it's quite possible as, you know, Abram's, come back from his vision and all that God has promised him and even the covenant and the smoking pot and the flaming torch and that God will unilaterally fulfill his promise. As she's thinking through all this and, you know, as the years have passed, Sarah is thinking, but I'm still barren. She's probably thinking she's a failure. That she is the one who has failed to produce a son for her husband. Who's then, you know, then the furthering of God's promises and plan would take place. So there's probably a sense of guilt and failure and all of that going on with Sarah. 
And as the burden of her barrenness weighs heavy on her, she turns to Abram and says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, Abram. Now this is a true statement. Because we know that it is the Lord who gives children. It is the Lord who gives life and the Lord who takes away life. And this is a recognition of the sovereignty of the Lord. And yet the way Sarai is making this statement about the Lord's sovereignty, you can almost sense that she actually has a problem with the Lord's sovereignty. See, she's not seeing the sovereignty of God as a good thing, but she's seeing this as a bad thing. As though God being sovereign is now withholding that which is good for her. There's a real sense in which Sarai is questioning the goodness of God like Eve did in the garden when she was tempted by the serpent. You know, and this is instructive for us. Because in, in our reformed evangelical circles particularly, we understand that God is sovereign over everything. That God is sovereign over our lives, our circumstances, our salvation. He's sovereign over everything and everyone. And we all get that to a large extent. But what we need to equally hold on to is the fact that God is also good. God is never either or. He is both sovereign and good all the time. And because God is good and does only good for his children, he does only what is good for his children. And that's his, that means that his posture toward his children, it's never away from his children. To just let them be and, you know, let them in, you know, go to their ruin. Let just, you know, total disaster happen to them. No, that's not his posture. No, his posture toward his children is to do them good for his name's sake. God is good and does only good for his children. Now, this does not mean, however, that we will get every good thing that we think we need. See, the single person who desires to get married, that, may, that person may or may not find a spouse. The married couple who desires to have a child may or may not have a child. The older person who desires to have a pain-free life may or may not have that life. Or the desire for a, a, a trouble-free family, the desire for a, a trouble-free workplace, or perhaps even a church that has no troubles. You know, those desires and that list could just go on and on, whatever it is. But let me just say this, based on what we know of who God is. These things may or may not come about from God's sovereign hand. See, God's hand of providence is sometimes difficult and hard to understand as to why some things happen and why some things don't happen. It's difficult to understand. And, and I realize that some of you are going through some very difficult circumstances. But we must not think 
that because God does only what is good for his children, that we will necessarily get every good thing that we think we need. It does not mean that when it says that God will do only good for his children. But it does mean that God is so good that he will give to us only what is supremely good. And that may mean not having some of the things that we think we need. Or at least not in the time that we think that we need it in. But God will only give us what is good. You know, fundamentally, as believers, when you pare it all down, I'm, I'm being a little bit simplistic here, but as believers, when we struggle in our walk with the Lord, you can almost be assured that a big part of that is because you're not seeing rightly the goodness of God. You're not seeing rightly the goodness of God, that he is good all the time and he will only do what is good for his children. See, from the first time Satan tempted Eve to question the goodness of God, our sinful flesh continues to go down that thinking when we don't get our way. Oh, God is not as good as he says. Oh, he, he's, he's not given me that, that tree there that is actually really good. When in reality, God is supremely good and will only give what is supremely good for his children. See, one of the things I regularly tell others especially in recent years. Especially when I see, you know, for, for the longest time in my life too, I, I never got a strong understanding of the goodness of God. I got his sovereignty, I got his purity, I got his mercy and all of that, but not the goodness of God. And so now one of the things I regularly tell people, especially in recent years, is to look for the goodness of God when they're reading their Bible. In whatever passage, look for the goodness of God. In what God is saying or in what God is not saying. In what God is allowing or in what God is not allowing. In what God is doing or in what God is not doing. Even when he is silent, look for the goodness of God in that. In fact, even in God's judgment demonstrated to the wicked, look for the goodness of God in that. Oh, we all need reminders of God's goodness. I need you to regularly remind me that God is good all the time. And you need me to regularly remind you that God is good all the time. See, because if we don't do this as we spend time in God's word and as we fellowship with one another and we're not reflecting on this and encouraging each other this way, when the difficult trials and circumstances come about, we will struggle even more to see the goodness of God. And instead of relying on the Lord and waiting on him, we will take things into our own hands and act out in fleshly ways. And that will lead to a lot of pain, a lot of disaster, sometimes even lifelong painful consequences. So Sarai is questioning the goodness of God, thinking that because God is sovereign, he has withheld that which is good from her. And so she takes things into her own hands and comes up with a plan.
See, she has an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And in those days, for a rich family, the woman of the house could have her own personal slave. That would cater uh, to her needs specifically. And this slave primarily would be accountable to the lady of the house. And this is who Hagar was. And the fact that it says Hagar was an Egyptian slave should remind us that Hagar was somebody that Abram acquired when he went to Egypt. Remember, Abram went to Egypt when God tested him with regards to the land, and there was famine in the land. And so in his unbelief, he went to Egypt, and by the time he left Egypt, he acquired a lot of riches, including many servants. And so Hagar is one of those servants. So already there's a hint that this person, Hagar, is there in the picture because of Abram's sin and unbelief when he first went to Egypt. This is part of the lingering consequence of his sin. And Sarah's plan is this. She is barren, and what her plan is that she would give her maidservant or slave Hagar to Abram as his wife so that she could have children through her. And you're thinking, what? I mean, Abram's a man of faith. Uh, Sarah is a woman of faith. I, I mean, this is a crazy plan. But let me just tell you that this wouldn't have sounded so crazy in the culture that they lived in. See, because in the ancient Near Eastern culture where polygamy was rampant, you know, having multiple wives and concubines, they had ways of dealing with childlessness. So it would be that if a wife was barren, she could essentially present her husband with a slave girl and she would become a secondary wife to, to have a child. And essentially, any son that is born out of this union would belong to the primary wife. And so in this case, Sarai would have a son as a result, and it would, and it would also be the biological son of Abram, as God had promised. And so this was a very acceptable thing. It was even legal in that ancient Near Eastern culture. There was nothing odd about it. It was just a normal thing that they did. Here's a caution for us as believers. That what is legally accepted and the norm in our society should not be the norm for us if it goes against the word of God. See, in our day and age, the society has redefined what gender is, what family is, what marriage is, even legalized killing of babies in the womb. And, uh, you know, there's a whole myriad of other things as well. But we must always keep in mind that what should be norm for us should always be what the word of God says and not what the culture of the day tells us. No matter how normal it might be for the culture around us. No matter how legal it might be for the culture around us. See, God had made it abundantly clear in Genesis 2.23 what God's pattern for marriage is. That it would be between one man and one woman where the two would become one that they would become one flesh, that there would be a union between the husband and the wife, between the man and the woman, where they would be united spiritually, emotionally, physically, and where the two lives are essentially lived in unison following the Lord. There's a joining of hearts and minds and bodies and everything, and the two are following the Lord together in the same direction, side by side. 
And we know that what God has designed is always good for us. But what Sarah is suggesting here is not according to God's good design for marriage. And look at Abram's response. The last part of verse 2 and verse 3. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the human authors of Scripture, they, they build on each other. They even pick up phrases and events to connect things. It's not just the grand narrative. There's theology that's built up. There's phrases that's built up and making all these connections. But sometimes the same author, even within the same book, can use similar language to hint at something that has previously taken place. Here the the human author, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using similar language as that which is used in Genesis 3 to show that Abram and Sarai's actions are sinful and it is echoing the fall in the garden. Just like in Genesis 3, Adam listened to the voice of his wife. So Abram Listen to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam, so Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. So this is essentially an echo of the fall The Bible's hinting that, hey, this is not a good thing that's happening here. This is a sinful thing. And the point here is not, you know, as particularly the men, the husbands. It's not husbands don't listen to your wives. Not at all. I mean, husbands, it is good and right for you to listen to your wives as you are thinking through things and making decisions together as a family. It would be right and good for you to do that. In fact, because it's a partnership, because it's a unison, it's a one flesh relationship, it w- you should be doing that. You know, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way as co-heirs, co-heirs of the grace of life. So what's the point here then? The point here is that when a wife is fearful or distressed or or, or thinking in a fleshly way, it is the husband's job as the head of the home to lovingly shepherd his wife and point her back to the goodness of God. That's the point here. That's the point of being the head of the home. It's not to domineer over everyone, but it is to serve everyone in the home and point everyone back to the Lord. That is the role of the husband. That is the role of the father. That is the role as the head of the home. And in this case, if you think about it, Abram was the one whom God gave the promises to. Abram was the one whom God said, look at the stars and your descendants are going to be like those twinkling stars in that dark night sky. It was to Abram that God gave the vision of the smoking pot and the flaming torch and God made the covenant with Abram. So Abram, as the head of the home, was given the responsibility to look after his wife and to lead her to greater trust in the Lord as he had been given direct revelation from the Lord. But we don't see Abram saying here, oh my dear Sarai, this this is not a good idea. I know that the culture around thinks this is normal and legal, but it's not a good idea because it is not God's design for marriage. 
You don't see him saying, my dear Sarah, it's always good to live under God's good rule and to live under his word and not go outside those boundaries. He's not saying, Sarah, I know you are distressed. I know this is weighing on you heavily. Let's offer sacrifice on the altar and call on the name of the Lord and seek his face. You don't see Abram doing any of that. He simply listens to his wife's foolish and sinful plan that has come about because of her fear and insecurity. Perhaps at this point, he reasoned, my wife is distressed. There's so much pressure on me from her. So much time has passed. And, you know, technically the Lord just said, it'll be my biological son. So, you you know, he didn't say anything about Sarah. Maybe he reasoned this way. I mean, I don't know exactly, but regardless, in listening to his wife, Abram didn't protect or shepherd his wife. He acted faithlessly and then reaps the consequences of his actions. Look at verses 4 and 5. And he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on a mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarah's plan worked. She wanted a son through this woman, and Abram's intimate with Hagar just, just one time, and Hagar becomes pregnant. And Hagar then gets this sense of, oh, I'm better than Sarah. See, because I'm the one who got pregnant just by being with Abram one time. And now I bear the heir to this household. And she becomes prideful and, and, and looks down on Sarah. And then tensions start developing. And now Sarah can't, Sarah can't take it anymore. She's, she's filled with jealousy and hurt and everything is compounding. And now because she's hurt, now she shifts the blame. And she points to Abram. Abram, it's all your fault. When in reality, it was her plan in the first place. Even though Abram had a huge responsibility as head of the home to help her and to protect her. So much like in the garden, isn't it? Sin has happened. Who's responsible? Not me. It's that person, that person, that person. And Abram, after this, is passive again. He's not acting as the head of the home. He doesn't shepherd his wife even through this while she's being hurt more. So he doesn't shepherd her even more so that she doesn't act out in sin. He simply tells Sarai to do whatever she wants to do. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. See, Sarai... With Abram not protecting her, shepherding her, nothing. She acts out in her sin and deals with Hagar harshly and Hagar flees from there. You know, it's interesting, the words deal harshly and flee, they're the same words that will be used by Moses again for the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Essentially, there will be a great reversal that will take place. Here, a Hebrew, the matriarch of Israel, is mistreating an Egyptian, and the Egyptian flees. Many years later, the roles will be reversed. In the Exodus, the Egyptians will mistreat the Hebrews, and the Hebrews will flee from them by God's grace. Essentially, the principle of you sow what you reap is going to happen.
And Abram and Sarah, you know, they would have never thought of the long-standing consequences of their actions. That it would have on their family. And it should be a reminder for us as well that when we compromise, when husbands don't lead and shepherd, or we just go the way of the world, compromise thinking, oh, everybody around, it's okay, everyone else is doing it. You know, that's what kids often say, right? Hey, everyone else is doing it, why can't I do it? If we have that kind of attitude, oh, sin always has consequences, and sometimes that can last a lifetime. In fact, as a long-standing consequence of this sin, the Arab nations, many of the Arab nations that will come out from Ishmael, the son of Hagar, will will become perpetual enemies of the nation of Israel as you go through the pages of Scripture as we move on. So the situation here in the first six verses, it's really horrible. And it is sad. I mean, Abram and Sarai, they, they are the people of faith. And yet they're not acting in faith. They're not trusting God. They're not relying on God. They're taking things into their own hands and acting in the flesh. And then there's Hagar the Egyptian. She's by no means innocent. But, but really, uh, I mean, she was just basically treated as a commodity. I mean, she was a personal slave of, of Sarai, and she was told to do, do this, and all she could do is obey. And then her fleshly self came out, and then she's treated harshly. And then she has to run away from the home. What you see here is that God tested Abram and Sarai regarding the seed promise, and they failed miserably. They were faithless, but nevertheless, God will be faithful to keep his promises. And so we move from human faithlessness in verses 1 through 6 to God's faithfulness in verses 7 through to 16. I just want you to just think about this. I mean, the blessing calling out of Abram and blessing him was so that he would be a blessing to others. Abram's not being a blessing to his wife. Abram's not being a blessing to Hagar either, especially seeing how harshly she was treated, you know, to again go back to his wife, lovingly shepherd her, and even just sort out some of those things. Sarai, again, the woman of faith, has treated Hagar harshly as well, and, and she's running away. This pregnant woman, this Egyptian woman, is running away from this household of faith. And she's even willing to go through the wilderness while being pregnant with no one to protect her, not knowing if she'll get any food or water. And it is in this hopeless situation that the Lord appears to Hagar and cares for her. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. Now, this is the first time we see the appearance of the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. And he will appear many times in the Old Testament. And what you'll see here, as you will see in other places of Scripture, the angel of the Lord is someone who is distinct from the Lord, someone who is distinct from Yahweh, but is also associated with Yahweh or the Lord. In fact, you'll see it even here in verse 13, if you quickly look at verse 13, where it says, she called the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and what she says is, you are God. So she's referring to the angel of the Lord as the Lord, Yahweh, and God. And many theologians believe this, the angel of the Lord is, is the pre-incarnate Son of God. 
This is the second person of the triune God who will one day come into the world as God-man and be named Jesus. And it says here, the, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. See, the Lord didn't just simply, you know, he was just going along and, you know, stumbled across Hagar on the way. Oh, oh, Hagar, how, how you doing? No, he, he found Hagar. It's like he went looking for Hagar, went in pursuit of Hagar. And the text says that Hagar was by a spring on the way to Shur. Now Shur is, is south of the land of Canaan, and it's close to Egypt. So you, uh, you can understand where she's going now. As an Egyptian, she's going back to where she came from. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. See, what you see here is the Lord calls her by name. He knows exactly who she is, and yet he asks her a question. And we've seen this before in the early chapters of Genesis, that when God asks people a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer to the question. He's trying to get people to think about that question and the situation that they're in. He asks, where have you come from and where are you going? See, Hagar has lived with Abram and Sarah for a while now. And she would have noticed how blessed Abram and Sarah were. And all those who came in contact with Abram and Sarai, how they too were blessed. She would have noticed that, although at this point, it may not have seemed that way to her. And so God is saying, I really want you, I want you to think of where you have come from, the place that you have left. And I want you to think of where you're going. You see, Egypt is not where the blessing is. It's not the place where the promises of God are reiterated and where the word of God is being spoken. And you can also imagine as the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness and, and they're in the plains of Moab where they've always had this temptation of going back to Egypt thinking, oh, the food there back in Egypt was better. Life was so much better back there when reality, that was not the place of blessing that God intended. So the Israelites too, as they're listening to this, they would have understood this is for the good of Hagar that God is asking this question. And so after causing her to think about where she has come from and where she's going, the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. See, the Lord is saying, don't go to Egypt, but return to the land and return to the house of Abram. And return to Sarai, your mistress. And, you know, implied in there also is, you know, for Sarah to think, Sarah, Sarai, you were acting in a way, or Hagar, sorry, you were acting in a way where you thought you were above Sarai when you fell pregnant. And you looked down on Sarai with contempt. I want you to go back and humble yourself and submit to your mistress. She is your authority and I want you to own your mistake and go back. Now I'm sure this command would, would have brought some fear to Hagar's mind. And as she thinks of the danger she would put herself in and even her unborn child. And so then the Lord assures her with a promise. Verses 10 through 12. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. See, the Lord is assuring her that 
Hagar, this is not going to be the end of your life if you go back to where you came from. And this is not going to be the end of your baby's life either. And that child that you have, that you're pregnant with, he's going to be a son. And you will call his name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. And why? Because I have heard your affliction. I have seen how you've been treated so poorly. And then he says, your children, your descendants, they're going to be so numerous that it would be impossible to count them. They would become great as well. And so even here, as you see, that promise to Abram and Abram's offspring, part of that promise, even though this is not the line of promise, some of that blessing is also flowing in this direction with the connection with Abram. But the Lord also says, but your son, his character, he will be a wild man, or more specifically, a wild donkey of a man. Meaning that he, he will be aggressive and hostile and, and independent and uh, generally hostile to everyone around him. So that's the promise that's given to Abram, uh, to Hagar. And Hagar is, is told after she's given this promise, so return back, return back to the land and return back to Sarai, knowing that her offspring would survive and would become great as well. And so here's Hagar's response, verses 13 and 14. So he called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well shall be called Bir Lahai Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and Berid. She, as she thought about the promises of God, and as she thought about the fact, this God, when I was running away, when, when the people of faith had mistreated me, has come to me, a slave, a nobody. He has appeared to me, and he has seen me, and he has cared for me, and he has promised me things. This is the God who sees. She's saying, I'm just so amazed by the fact that this God actually saw me and looked upon me and cared for me. She's just just so overcome in a good way that God would look on her. And so she goes back. Look at verse 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You can imagine, you know, that journey back wouldn't have been, should have wrestled through so many things. But even more so as she approached Abram, as, he, as she came back. And she told Abram that this God of yours appeared to me. And he cared for me. And he provided for me and promised these things. And promised me that I would have a son and I am to call him Ishmael. You can only think of what Abram would have thought about his God, where Abram himself would have been humbled. Oh, wow. My God treated this slave woman this way? How did I treat her? This great God of mine, this good God of mine, has cared for her, and yet I did not do that. And so Abram accepts Sarai back into the household and accepts the son. But here's the thing, though, in verses 15 and 16. 
three times it says, well, it says Abram had a son and called his name Ishmael, meaning he accepted him. Three times it says in verses 15 and 16, Hagar bore, whom Hagar bore, whom Hagar bore. Who's missing? Sarai, his wife. The person that God had planned. This child is a product of human effort because they fail to wait on the wait on the son of promise. Sarah is nowhere in the picture. And the picture in these last two verses is a picture of this relational damage that will be left behind by their sin. The, this dysfunction that will follow for years and even generations as conflict arises between the two sons. But you know, if the story ended here, it would be terrible and sad. But it doesn't stop here. Even though Abram and Sarai have been faithless, even in the way they treated Hagar, the slave, and they failed miserably about the seed promise, God is good all the time. And he will do only good to his children, and he will fulfill his promise to bring about that promised seed, even though now Abram and Sarai will live with the consequences of their sin. So yes, there is grace, there is mercy. His plan will move forward, but they will live with the consequence of their sin. I just want to end by saying this. You know, Hagar, despite being shown the kindness of God and the goodness of God and shown how much God cares for her, nowhere in Scripture do you see her ever calling on the name of the Lord. Nowhere. In fact, when you get to chapter 21, she will leave the household of faith with her son, Ishmael. And what you see there is also that then the sort of wife that she gets for her son is a pagan, unbelieving, another Egyptian wife for, his, for her son. And as you get to the New Testament too, Hagar and the birthing of Ishmael, it's, it's referred to as an example of human effort, not something of faith, not something of promise. So that would indicate to me that despite God showing her care and her love and, and just watching over her, Hagar never actually turned to the Lord. She experienced the goodness of God and the care of God, but never turned to him. Did God know that Hagar would reject him? Of course he did. But that didn't stop him from caring for her. The same way Jesus didn't stop caring for Judas, even though he knew that Judas would betray him. For those of you who are not Christians and listening this morning, let me tell you, you being part of coming to a Sunday morning or listening to a sermon or doing other religious things is not going to make you right with God. See, the problem is deep, and that's the sin issue that all of us have apart from the grace of God. None of us can get rid of it. You know, perhaps... And you've experienced the goodness of God. You've experienced the care of God. But maybe it's us Christians, the way we've treated you, where we haven't represented Jesus to you. And so you think this God is not good. 
for that, we ask that you'd forgive us. But beyond that, we would say this, your sin problem is still your sin problem that is deep inside of you. And rather than looking to us, we are poor reflections of the goodness of God and of Jesus Christ. Look to God himself. You see, this God is good and supremely good. And because he's so good and he so cares and he so loves, many years later after this, God was still faithful to keep his promise, even though his people were faithless and didn't keep their end of the bargain. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world, to die. Yes, that's right, to die, to suffer in your place, to suffer for your sins and my sins, because he is that good. And he died on that cross for the sin of this world, and then he rose up on the third day, proving that he is able to forgive sins, and he is He is himself God, and he is able to make us right with him. Friend, let me tell you. This day is the day for you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. You have experienced the goodness of God and the care of God, and you continue to do so. But there can be many people in the world who will say, oh, this God is so good and, and are happy to experience some of that goodness, but never submit to him, never follow after him, never rely on him. Today is the day for you to repent and to turn to Jesus and to trust in him and to believe in him. You do not want to be like Hagar who experienced the goodness of God and then rejected him. Oh, God is good. You ultimately being damned one day has nothing to do with God not being good. God is being good even to you this morning for you to turn from your sin and to turn to him. God is supremely good and you have an opportunity today to turn to him and trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you say you believe, you believe in the Lord and you believe in what Jesus has done on the cross for you and who he is, then I would say turn away from your sin and continue to follow him because the evidence that you have fully trusted in and have relied on Jesus is the fact that you will continue to turn from your sin and continue to rely on him, continue to call on his name and keep walking down that path and not just simply experience the goodness of God on a superficial level. Now to the believers, I want to remind you again, God is good and does only good for his children. He's a God who sees us in our affliction, in our trials, and he is there for you, caring for you. And the greatest evidence of that is what he has done on the cross to send his son on the cross to die for your sin. If he did not withhold his son, how much more he will give you all things to take you to glory. That is how good God is. It says, let us continue to rely on him and and. Think about what Jesus has done on the cross for us and find our delight in him, find our joy in him and live each day representing Jesus to the rest of the people around us, telling others to turn away from their sin and to turn to this only good God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Where would we be if you were not good? Thank you, Father. Most of all, you have shown your goodness toward us through the death of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to find our delight, our joy, our everything in him. And as we walk this life of faith, 
help us to, as a result of relying on him, represent him on this earth and tell others about the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your word. Bless it to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.